and I were chatting during the during the break, and he made the observation that often uh, various groups and organizations go continue to exist for a long time after they lost sight of their reason for existing, their mission, their purpose. And there was a time when you could have stood up in any church in the land and said, the church's mission is to evangelize. And no one would have argued with you. No one would have disagreed, and probably many would have wondered why you felt the need to state the obvious. But that, that time has long since passed. Some of you may or may not be familiar with uh, Jordan Peterson. He is a clinical psychologist from Canada. I realize none of that recommends him. But recently he released a video in which he had a message for Christian churches in, in his way of thinking. And Toward the end of that message, he said the following, quit fighting for social justice, quit saving the planet, attend to some souls, that's what you're supposed to do, that's your holy duty, do it, and it was in that, in that very tone of voice. And I thought about that a lot. And I thought it is, a, it is a sad state of affairs when a clinical psychologist has to remind churches of what their purpose is. And it's an amazing thing that he can see the need for that with greater clarity than many who claim to be disciples of Jesus Christ. That, that's, that is an odd thing, but one of the things he does that maybe sometimes we haven't done as much as we should have, is he, he gets out and talks to people. And he hears about their problems, and he hears about their difficulties, and he knows they need help. And so, I, I would certainly agree with him when he says we need to intend to some souls. That, that is our job. That is our task. Jesus, the very last thing he says to the apostles in Matthew, in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, is all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even the end of the age. Now, believe it or not, some people have looked at this passage and said, well, yes, Jesus said that, but that's for the apostles. Well, now, hold on a minute. Hold, just He told them to make disciples, and then he told them to teach the disciples to do what he commanded them to do. 
And he just commanded them to make disciples. And so it seems to me evident in the context. And in fact, the twelve were disciples. In Matthew chapter 11 and verse 1, it says, When Jesus had finished giving instruction to his twelve disciples, he departed from there to teach and preach in their city. And what he had been doing in the previous context, right before he that statement is made, is he had been telling them to go out and do what he was in fact doing. That is, teaching and preaching. He says in Matthew 10, 24, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign the members of his household? Therefore, do not fear them. For there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. And so he says, listen, if you want to be my disciple, if you want to follow after me, don't be afraid. Get out and speak the gospel. And that's what we need to do. That's what disciples do. And that's what the apostles trained disciples to do. Well, how do we know that? Well, look at, look at Acts chapter 8. And you, you know what's going on in Acts chapter 8. It is immediately following the death of Stephen, and and Saul of Tarsus took the advantage, took advantage of that situation, that environment, to persecute the church. And as a result of this grievous persecution of the church, Christians are scattered everywhere. And in Acts chapter eight and verse four it says, "Therefore those who had been scattered went about preaching the word." Now I want you to think about that for a minute. So, why were they scattered? They were scattered because they've been preaching the word. That, that's Stephen preached Jesus, and he got him killed. And others were preaching Jesus, and so Saul's running around trying to throw him in prison, put him to death, whatever. And so, they said, man, we got in trouble for preaching. What are we going to do? Well, we're going to run and preach. And so they started preaching Jesus like this. That is fantastic, actually, because circumstances don't change the mission. We got in trouble for preaching, okay? We just need to run and preach. And we'll... Wherever we take a water break, we'll stop and preach. And we'll start running again. But we're not going to quit. Quitting, not proclaiming Jesus Christ wasn't an option. That, that, that's not part of it. Because they had been, it had been drilled into them that that was their mission. There was the expectation. And that's reflected all over the place. You look at Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 12. The Hebrew writer says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers. Notice Notice what he says. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, 
You have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you've come to need milk and not salt food. So there's the expectation that after a given period of time, disciples would become teachers. And I understand, I, I remember what James says, and let not many of you become teachers, and I understand that not every disciple is going to teach in a formal sense. But everybody, every disciple, is going to be declaring Christ in the way they live their life and in their daily speech. And it's, it's just, you can't follow Jesus and not become like Jesus. That's, that's not going to happen. And so, the apostles equipped the saints in the early church to declare Jesus Christ. And so, what is the church's role in evangelism? Primarily, it's to equip saints again for the for the work of service, to equip them uh, to to teach. And there there are churches out there who frankly want to they want to phone it in. They want to they want a hired gun who's going to take care of that for them. And that that's not that's not fair. That's not it's fine for a church to have an evangelist. It's fine for a church to have an evangelist whose primary emphasis is evangelizing. But it is also an evangelist's responsibility, as we read in Ephesians 4, to equip saints to evangelize with him because he'll have the relationships he has, but he will not have the relationships everybody else in the church has. And so it's, 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 a, it's always, by intention, been a team effort. And we have more influence than we realize. Sociologists estimate that the average person over the course of their lifetime knows about a thousand people. And those thousand people know about a thousand people. And do you know what that means? That means we're only seven folks removed from everybody on the planet. And you think, well, I might only influence one or two people. Yeah, but they have contact with all kinds of other people. They have contact with all kinds of other people. You never know what could happen. You just don't know. Years ago, I was down in Argentina with Tom Holly, And we went out to this little church uh, outside of, I believe it was outside of Buenos Aires. There was a Russian family that was worshiping out there. And we got out there, and they said, uh, we, have a, we have a friend back in Russia who just obeyed the gospel. Really? How did, how did they hear the gospel? And they, they told the name of the fellow who was over there teaching. I knew him. So I was with some Russian Christians who had a new Russian brother in Christ who had come in contact with the brothers that I knew back in America. Somebody says it's a small world. The Bowman say it's a big kingdom. It's a big kingdom. And so 
influences ripple out. And we, we never know how much good could be done if we all get involved. And I am, I am thankful for your involvement because I know from talking to many of you that you are out talking to people about the Lord. And that is fantastic. And just know that your labor is not in vain in Christ Jesus. So, keep up the good work. Secondly, churches need to pray. And that, that comes up over and over and over again. That, that was one of the things that Jesus um, told them to do. He said, the fields are white for harvest. Pray that the Lord will send workers into the harvest. Paul wrote in 2 Thessalonians 3.1, Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified just as it did also with you. In Colossians 4, 2 and 3, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping a word in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well that God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have been imprisoned. And so churches need to be collectively and, and the individual members both need to be praying for the work. In Acts 13, they fasted and prayed before they sent uh, Paul and Barnabas out to do the work that the Holy Spirit had called them to do. And so that needs to be that needs to be an integral part of this. Because one of the things you see in the early one of the things they figured out, and, and I think, you know, Peter and James and John failed to pray in the garden. And then they failed. But you get to Acts, and they're, they're praying, they're gathering together, devoting themselves to prayer in Acts chapter 1. They're devoting themselves to prayer in Acts chapter 2. And just everything, every time something comes up, every time something happens, good or bad, they pray about it. And I think what happened is that they said, you know what? We failed to pray and we failed. That is not happening again. We're not. We're, we're no longer going to fail to pray. And so they, they prayed about everything because they knew, they had learned, we are not going to succeed without God. So we need His help in everything we do, especially in doing His will. And of course, churches may support men, send men out to preach. We see that in Acts 13, 1 through 3. The church in Syrian Antioch sent out Paul and Barnabas according to the direction of the Holy Spirit. The church in Philippi and Philippians 4, 15 and 16 uh, supported Paul and the work he was doing. I know typically in, in these kinds of lessons we talk about the church and evangelism, a lot of time is spent on that. I, that's biblical, that's important, but I'm not sure that's where the emphasis needs to be laid. I think we need to spend more time thinking about our collective responsibility, the responsibility each and every one of us has to be involved in evangelism. So I want to spend a little bit of time thinking about exactly what 
evangelism consists of. You know, for a long, long time, uh, we we would study with people, and we would we would teach them the the plan of salvation. And one of the reasons that that approach was taken is because oftentimes we were talking to a Baptist neighbor or a Methodist neighbor, and they were pretty good Bible students. They, they had spent some time reading their Bible. They were familiar with who Jesus was and what Jesus had done and, and all that sort of thing. And so the feeling was, and I don't know whether it was right or not. I'm not here to assess that, frankly. But the feeling was, well, they know that. We need to, we need to get straight to what they, they don't know or they haven't seen, and we need to talk to them about how to respond to the gospel. And so a lot of time was spent doing that. Those days are gone. That... You will be very fortunate indeed if you run across somebody who knows much about the Bible today. Now, maybe it's maybe it's different down here. But most of the people I come in contact with now, even if they go to church, they don't know much about the Bible at all. And I you know, I I was first in Impressed with this, I was with a brother in Christ up in Indiana, and uh, we we ran across a young man. I, I think maybe he needed a ride, and Chris said, "All right, I'll, I'll give you a ride." And we we chatted with him in the in the truck there, and we asked him about a Bible study. Would you be willing to do that? And he said, "Yeah, yeah, I, I might be interested in that." And I said, "Well, let's study the let's study the Book of Mark." Uh, and he said, well, okay. And, you know, I didn't I didn't say Jose or Lamentations or Ezekiel. I said Mark. And uh, he paused for a long time after he said, okay. And he said, now, is that a book in the Bible? And this young man was not, he was not dumb. He was not uneducated. But he was completely ignorant about it. He did not. And most people today, most people in America cannot tell you four gospels are. Most Americans do not know that Genesis is the first book of the Bible. A significant number of people, and this, this is based on actual surveys that have been done. I'm not making up statistics here. A significant number of people think Billy Graham preached the Sermon on the Mount. And about 12% of people think Joan of Arc was Noah's wife. How he got connected with a medieval revolutionary in France, I'm not sure, but that's, yeah, I did not, I, I could not have come up with that on my own. It's from Prothero's book, Religious Literacy, if you're looking for the exact spec, that's, that's or the exact statistic, that's where that, that came from, but we need to start with Jesus. Because people don't know Jesus, they don't know who he is, they don't, they've heard some things, but they don't know. We need to start exactly where they started in Acts 2.22 when Peter said, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, 
this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Now, I would point out, they did know something about Jesus because they had laid eyes on him. And that's still where Peter starts. We need to start with Jesus. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1, 22 and 23, Indeed, the Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles <coughs> And so Paul was really unconcerned about what the perception of preaching Christ was in, in various groups. This is, this is who we are. This is our, and we preach Jesus. We preach Jesus Christ. People need to hear the story of the cross. They need to hear the gospel. They need to hear what God has done for them in Jesus Christ, and then they need to be called to repentance. And, and you, know, you know what Peter says in Acts 2.38. He says, repent. That's not all he says, but he says, repent. In Acts 3.19 and 20, the next sermon, he says, therefore, repent and return. And we think, oh, you know, boy, that's 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 where it gets tough when you start telling people they're wrong and they got to change. Maybe, but I, I'm going to tell you, when I first sat down with a guy I had grown up with and Gary Sandesky and they started talking to me about the gospel. I was trying to find peace and comfort in a bottle. And I was trying to find fulfillment and belonging in a lot of empty relationships devoid of any commitment. And when they said this has got to change, I thought, yes, it does. Because I can't take any more of this. And I, I'm mindful of the response of the saints in Jerusalem when Peter came back from having taught in Cornelius' home. And he explains to them everything that happens. And they say, well, then God has granted, literally that word means gifted, God has granted repentance to the Gentiles also. And they understood that repentance, the opportunity to change, is a gift. If your life is empty and meaningless and you are broken, You've got to change is the best news in the world. And and we need to remember that. Now they 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 did point out some things I was wrong about, but I didn't that was that was no revelation. I knew I was wrong, and okay. You're wrong though. That's why I'm here, actually. Because the things I'm wrong about are rooted in my life. That's that's why I sat down with you. I didn't say that, but that's what I'm, you know. I want change. Well, you've got to change. Good. Show me. What do I need to do? 
Line it up for me. Because I don't know. If I knew, I'd have changed already. And so we need to, we need to, not everybody is going to, I understand, not everybody is going to want to hear you're wrong and you need to change. Some people are okay with stupid, temporarily. But there are a lot of broken people out there who are desperately, desperately longing for change. For somebody to come along and say it's possible, that's good news. That is good news. And then there is a call to confess Jesus is Lord. And and we, we talked about this a little bit the other day, Romans 10, 8 through 10. What does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord. And then, of course, Luke 6, 46, where Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? And so the other thing that we need to impress upon people is, you know, it is not... Becoming a Christian is not just a ticket to heaven and a solution for your sins. It is. It is entrance into the presence of God. And and it is forgiveness of your sins. Those, Those are results of becoming a Christian. But it's a commitment. When you say Jesus is Lord, you're making a commitment. You need to understand the kind of commitment you're making. You're not making a commitment. You, we hear this all the time out in the religion. Jesus wants to be a part of your life. We need to let people know that Jesus has zero interest in being a part of anybody's life. That is, that is the polar opposite of what Jesus said. What Jesus said is, I want to be all of your life. I want you to take up your cross and follow me. I want you to put self to death. I don't want anything left of you when we're done with this process. I want it to be all me. That's what Jesus did. And that's the only solution to the problem. Because whatever part of ourselves we preserve in that process, we're preserving part of the problem. Because self is the very one that got me in trouble. My biggest problem to this day is that guy I shaved with. And it's only when he is put down and conquered that anything goes wrong. And so Jesus does not want to be a part of anybody's life. That is a bold-faced lie. And we need to show people the kind of commitment that is entailed in confessing Jesus Lord and in being buried, putting self to death. Baptism is an implicit commitment. And that's, that's, that's the final thing. Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that's just... There, there are a couple things... I'm in danger of getting on top of you. I'm going to try not to do it. But there, a lot of times... When I hear Acts 2.38 quoted, it's quoted like this. Repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. The forgiveness of sins is not the end. And by end I mean purpose. 
The forgiveness of sins is the means to the end. The end is reconciliation with God. And I know a gift of the Holy Spirit lesson is not on the schedule, but if you want to if, if you want to spend all afternoon talking about that, I will be happy to. But here's what happened in brief. In Ezekiel 8 through 11, the presence of God left the temple because it was full of idols. He was no longer with his people. But even before he left, God started prophesying that he would, his presence would return to the temple. And the language of those prophecies frequently comes in the form of pouring out his spirit, as it does in Joel 2 and Zechariah 12, 10 and uh, Isaiah 44, 1 through 3 and uh, Ezekiel 39, a number, a number of places like that. And so what we have in Acts chapter 2, when the Spirit is poured out, is we have a temple inauguration scene. We have God dwelling in the midst of his people anew. And it is a picture of reconciliation. And when Peter talks about receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit, what he's saying is your sins are going to be forgiven. You're going to be reconciled to God. You're going to have a relationship. God is going to be with you, and you're going to be with God. And that is good news. That's, that's the end toward which we're moving to. And so, forgiveness of sins is, is the prerequisite to us being in the presence of God again. To that restored relationship. And the, the way that that's talked about over and over and over again in the, in the New Testament is with temple language. 1 Corinthians 3, 1 Corinthians 6, 2 Corinthians 6, all of those passages. Talk, 1 Peter uh, 2, 4 through 9, all of those passages talk in terms of us being in temple, usually collectively. It's usually the y'all and not the you individuals. Not exclusively, but usually. And so we are reconciled to God. And that is our hope, and that is our identity. And that is, and that is good news. And so, obviously, there's, there's, there's more that could be said, but that is the, in brief, that is the substance of the, of the gospel message. But I want to conclude with one final thought, and that is we have an evangelistic tool that is more powerful than we realize. And it is the evangelistic tool that Peter spends a great deal of time talking about. In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, as he talks about us being the household of God as spiritual stones composing a spiritual house, he says in 1 Peter 9, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that purpose so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What is my purpose? 
My purpose is to proclaim the excellencies of Him who called me out of darkness into His marvelous light. How do I do that, Peter? That's interesting, because what you might expect him to say is, you might expect a treatise on how we're supposed to go out and teach people, but that's not what Peter goes on to talk about. What he goes on to say, just a few verses later in 1 Peter 2.12, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the things in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Go to work and be a Christian. Go to school and be a Christian. Go to your neighbor and be a Christian. Go to your family reunion and be a Christian. Live your faith. He says in 1 Peter 2.15 in regard to their relationship with government. He says, such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. And he's, he's talking about a particular brand of foolish men uh, in that context that we know as politicians. Uh, and, and he says, you can silence their foolishness. Well, well how, how would we do that? By doing right. By doing right by... And the, and the Roman government had perfected by this time, they had perfected the accusations that they made against various religious groups uh, in order to slander them. And they have been doing that even before Christianity because they, they saw religious meetings as... as Potential pockets of political subversion, and so they tried to they tried to stomp that out, even even prior to Christianity, with many of the mystery religions, and and so they they had a stock set of accusations they would make, and they made those accusations against Christians. The problem is nobody believed it because that's not how Christians live. And then in 1 Peter 3, 1, in the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. And so our families can be transformed by the way we, way we live our lives. 1 Peter 3, 14 through 16, even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed, and do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ, as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. So here's what happens. Christians persevere in doing good, and they continue to do good even to those who are persecuting them. And somebody comes along and says, what in the, wrong, what in the world is wrong with you? Why do you act like this? I am so glad you asked that question. I've been waiting for you to ask that question. Let's go talk about why I act like this. There's your opening. But now you're able to present Christ Jesus from a foundation of presenting Christ Jesus in your life. And they're not going to be saying, well, he says this, but it isn't real. They already know it's real. They've been watching it, and they've been puzzled by it. And now they're like, what in the world's going on? Well, let me tell you what's going on. Jesus suffered and died for me. And in consequence, he won the victory. So if I have to suffer here, to stand with my Lord, so be a small thing to be the hope that I have in Christ Jesus. Would you like to have that hope? And it's all, it's all built on our lives. And what we must not do, we must not hide our faith, 
inside a building. We we got to we got to get out there and be the Lord's people. This world is choking to death on virtual reality. That is the stupidest thing I have ever heard in my life. What does that even mean? If it's virtual, it's not real. What the world needs is real reality. And there's nothing more real than God. And we are his representatives here. And if we'll live life, and I'm not saying don't don't ask for Bible studies, I'm not saying don't go out looking for that. But that is going to have to stand on the shoulders of the people we are in Christ Jesus. And that will get people's attention when we do ask, when we do look. And I, I realize I didn't get to one question. I'll, I'll kick off next time with that. If you're not a Christian this morning, what, what, what are you pursuing? What, what are you, what are you here after? There is nothing in this world that is going to fill you. Nothing. There is a God-shaped hole in every one of us, and only God can fill it. And he does that through Jesus Christ. And so, abandon your empty pursuit and come to God through Jesus Christ and find true hope and true peace, true meaning and true purpose and true life in him. There's no place else to find. If you believe that Jesus is Christ, the Son of the living God, are ready to turn away from the things that are destroying you and be baptized, nothing would give us greater joy than to help you do that this morning. Come out and sing as you sing. There's a fountain free.